0: KHSU went offline and it was Chico or whatever and JPR actually has a lot of local um, information and stuff and they called me out of the blue and said oh hey can we you know kind of talk to you and maybe we can put you on for one of our fundraising gigs and I'm like sure and um, so you know we just talked and talked and then they cut and edited and I kept I was like oh that's me (laughs) And then I had people friends from Southern Oregon who were like, "Well, Cherie, I just heard you on the radio." <laughs> so anyway, I that's I have done a couple of things. That was fun.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an adjustment hearing yourself speak, right? Yeah, uh, it takes some time to get used to. Yeah,
0: I sound like my aunt. I look like my mother. I sound like my aunt.
1: Best before, Here we say, are right.
0: getting older.
1: <laughs> but nothing in no. Promotion in relation to your practice or anything like that? No. No. So is it just kind of hard to get the word out up here or Well,
0: you know, I I did some advertising on K Hum and one of the DJs would um, do all of the this, you know, the ad the actual ad. I would tell them what I wanted and we'd tweak it. Um, and that I always felt like you know, unless you're listening at just exactly the right moment, it's a lot of money that's not being heard. And then I used to advertise in the journal, um, you know, and I would do the special layouts in the journal. And the um, there was another one that was all about holistic healthcare that would come out once a year, and I did that. And so I've just been kind of at a loss, like where can I get my best bang for the buck? Um, And then I hired a new doctor and he kind of had his hand and could do some website stuff and Facebook stuff. And so we started doing more on Facebook, um, which has been pretty good, but how do you get to people who aren't on Facebook? And then it's like, oh, we're advertising to Facebook because we've started a lot of new procedures in our office. And I realized that people in our office, our patients, our current patients didn't know what we were doing so we started um oh just simple stuff like a whiteboard in the office saying featuring one
1: thing a month almost like a little news bulletin like
0: a news bulletin and then we would put the corresponding facebook blog you know print that out next to it and um that actually was really good cuz people were like oh i didn't know <laughs> so um it's been it's been it's been difficult i recently have been, mm, I really want to get one of those big billboards on the 101 corridor. They're they're pricey. They're kind of pricey. So I'm I'm kind of feeling that out. But I really I can see us doing something up there because, you know, kind of a captive all audience if you're going back and forth.
1: Yeah, hard church. to get away from that if yeah, you make that drive, right? Right.
0: So so I'm really excited about this, you know, talking to someone. I'm passionate, passionate about. Naturopathic medicine and what I've been able to put together up here. I'm I have to say I'm kind of proud of it.
1: <laughs> I'd be a little alarmed if you were going into this saying, you know, I'm not really happy with what I've done. You know, I feel like I've wasted my time. That would be alarming.
0: Well, you, you know, a lot of people do that. They're like, oh my God, I've been doing this for 10 years. And, and I don't like I it. I don't think, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. Mm, naturopathic medicine and I and I get reinforcement from our patients. Um, people like, you know, so many people I don't even know, they're like, oh, Dr. Edgar, oh, my God, thank you so much for bringing this to this county, right, and um, naturopathic medicine, and it just makes me feel good, you know, it really makes me feel good. We have, I think, over 3,000 patients right now. That oh, wow. Are, yeah, so there's three doctors and myself. I'm kind of backing away from seeing patients so much. Um, just because running the practice is intense, it takes a lot of time. Um, and I have three fabulous doctors. They're they're just amazing. They all kind of, we all do naturopathic medicine, primary care. Basically, we can treat whatever comes in through the door. Um, and if we can't, if it's really out of our, you know, out of our scope, then we refer. You know, we refer to the local endocrinologist, cardiologist, well, not endocrinologists because we don't have those, ENTs, cardiologists. Um, we refer when we need to. But we can take patients so much further than the um, the local conventional medicine, the medical doctors, right, who are so overworked. We were talking about that earlier. They don't have time to spend with patients. And, you know, basically they'll they'll run your your basic labs and they'll come back and they're like you're fine there's nothing wrong with you here's an antidepressant so frequently here's an antidepressant you're fine and so we get the patients who come to us and they kind of plop the stack of files on our desk and say I've seen every doctor in the county and everybody says I'm I'm fine what's wrong with me Right. And that's kind of our wheelhouse. That's where we do such good work because we look, we do more than your basic labs. You know, we look at nutritional deficiency. Go figure. Right. Oh, <laughs> which is something I think conventional medicine forgets how important nutrition and vitamins are. Right? Well, not
1: even forgets. They are almost refuse to look at it. It's not even a factor that they consider. And it's
0: basic biochemistry. You know, I was I was actually explaining this to my um, medical receptionist yesterday. And it's like our metabolism, our body runs on, it's like a really finely tuned Swiss clock that has all of these cogs interacting, right? And each of those cogs, when it makes contact in our body, it needs a vitamin or a mineral. And then that allows it to set off to another. So, you know, um, one chemical byproduct needs to be made into another one. It's just a chemistry process. But you need B12 or iron or magnesium for that process to continue. I mean, it's literally what makes the wheels of our body turn. And it fascinates me when I hear gastroenterologists say, oh, it's not about the food. Or doctors say, "Eh, don't take vitamins. It's a waste of money. It's like, It's like saying, don't eat. It's a waste. You you don't need any of that fuel or anything.
1: I've heard doctors say, oh, you don't need vitamins because you're getting everything you need in your diet. From people whose diets I know, I know what they eat, and they're definitely not getting it.
0: Excuse me. But yeah, even, you know, I have a lot of patients who are like, oh, I eat really well. Um, I don't need a vitamin. I'm like, do you eat like 10 or 12 servings of fruits and vegetables a day? Do you get good quality protein every day? And the, their eyes kind of go. Well, uh, I put lettuce and tomato on my sandwich, and then I have a salad, and it's usually like iceberg lettuce. Really, not much nutritional value there. Low little water, low little fiber, and and you need more than that. I actually did a um, a vitamin test of myself a few years ago, a nutritional test, and. I eat really well. Like I literally eat 12 or 14 servings of fruits and vegetables a day, you know, between a smoothie and the salads. I eat a lot. And then I take multivitamins and supplements as well, just to make sure I'm kind of topping things off, right? I'd rather have my body say, oh, you don't need so much of this and get rid of it than not have enough to get my wheels turning. And I was shocked when I got the response back from from the test. I was literally deficient in several things, deficient. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. And one of the things, so even though you can be eating really well, if your body isn't absorbing and doesn't have the right receptor, not the right receptor, say your receptors are a little funky from mom and dad, right? It's all genetics. So you get this receptor that maybe doesn't bind B12 really well, and it's going to keep showing up as a deficiency. So you kind of need to just smother your body in that vitamin or nutrient. I I think of it as like if you have a a car that has an oil leak, a slow oil leak, right? You just keep pouring oil in it so that your your car keeps going. And when you don't put the oil in, it freezes up. Hence our bodies, kind of the same thing, right? So anyway, um, it was fascinating to me just like, well, doctor, (laughs) I guess you need to take more vitamins and do something else. But it allowed me to fine tune what I was taking. As well, right? Having the results of this test. So, so, yeah, we do really well. Kind of went off tangent there, but for patients who don't feel well, they just don't feel well, they don't know what's going on. So frequently, it can be a chronic infection that, you know, um, if a doctor runs a panel on it, they'll go, oh, no, that just means you've had that before. Viruses, viruses, they're the worst. Um, and it means, oh, yeah, you've had it in the past and you just have antibodies to it, which is fine if you have low-level antibodies. But when you have really high-level antibodies, it means your body is, continues to fight this off, right? Um, it's kind of the long COVID situation. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because it, they've been doing research, lots of research with COVID, and wondering why people are getting this long COVID, Right. And what they're finding is that there's pools of the COVID virus that hang out in the body. And it just keeps wearing the body down, right? Brain fog, lots of um, virus in the brain, um, fatigue, that kind of thing. And stress, when your immune system gets a little overwhelmed by the stress and everything else, then you get more symptoms from that long COVID or other long chronic, you know, viral infection. So it's it's kind of good to hear the research proving what we've been saying all these years. Like, no, you actually do have, you know, chronic EBV mononucleosis, which is the acute phase of it, um, or any of these other viruses, right, or bacterial infections. And one of our doctors, um, Dr. Peachy, is brilliant brilliant with teasing out what kind of infection it is and often it's several right because your body can't get rid of them and she treats them and just step by step gets people better it's awesome such a great thing and um, what else oh and she's doing ozone therapy which is this new therapy it's very cool And she does it through IV or injection, and it's good for pain and chronic infections. It just really helps support the body in fighting things. So that's kind of her thing. Um, For those patients
1: that have,
0: oh, sorry, no worries. Let's just—I've had my fair
1: share of those moments.
0: Let's just turn that puppy off. I really. Eight. Apparently Certainly not an emergency.
1: There we go. For those people that are coming to you that have these almost systemic problems mm-hmm. that they can't seem to get fixed by going to a local MD. Yeah. Is it dietary related? Is it that problem of vitamins, or is it more the viral aspect of they're not getting rid of the viral? So it load can in be
0: many things, right? And it's it's rarely one thing. Um, certainly fine-tuning nutrition, that's almost always where we start. What are you eating? Are you getting what you need? Um, Are you getting out and moving your body? Just some basic stuff. But frequently these people who are so sick, like they're just so sick and nothing comes up on the regular panels. In this area, mold illness is a big thing. So it's just this constant exposure to mold. And genetically some people are more... Um, prone to being able to or being getting sick from mold and it devastates you I mean it just wipes your body out when you have this mold illness um, chronic Lyme infections so huge in this area so huge and
1: Lyme disease infections? Lyme disease oh, I didn't know that was up here
0: it is it is everybody thinks oh east coast when I was in medical school I'm like eh I don't even have to th- listen to this lecture cuz I'm going to be on the west coast it's not an issue it's endemic in this area it's huge um
1: I did not know that
0: yeah deer ticks bad <laughs> really bad it's it's not the beige big beige dog ticks that you see um they're very small they're kind of a reddish brown um Even if they're the nymph ticks that are like the size of a poppy seed, those can infect you. So frequently people don't even know they've been bitten. They just kind of wipe their arms and off goes the tick and they don't see it. Um, If you do get a tick, I recommend anybody who gets a tick bite, save the tick and you can get it tested. So you can look online, test tick, tick tests, um, and send it in. So put it in a baggie little damp cotton ball in there so it doesn't get all dried out. And they can test it for you to see, does it have Lyme disease? Is it carrying any of these other tick-borne diseases? Ticks are nasty little boogers. They carry a lot of disease. Um, and, yeah, it's all over the place. It goes up into Oregon. The Columbia Gorge actually has a huge – the Columbia River Gorge has a huge um, problem with that up there.
1: That wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. I'd always just – associated that with the east coast yeah
0: no it's it's bad and if you get the classic sign is you get a tick bite and then you get a bullseye rash right so it's red around the bite and then there's a clearing and then there's more red it looks like a bullseye that's classic it can just get red looking and especially if it starts small and keeps getting bigger really bad you need to be you need to see somebody i i kind of recommend you see somebody if you get any tick bite and then it, you can be assessed you can you know people will say yeah i remember i got a tick bite when i was 12 years old and god i got so sick afterwards i was so tired and i always think really you remember when you had a tick bite and what you felt like afterwards cuz that in itself is kind of amazing, and then just the rest of their lives, like I have this joint pain that doesn't go away. I'm always so tired. Every month, a different joint hurts. That's classic. These roaming joint pains. Oh, this elbow hurts. Oh, that knee hurts, and then it resolves, and then it comes back again. Classic Lyme disease. So many things I like could take talk about Lyme disease and Bartonella and. all of these
1: tick-borne diseases. Is there any way to combat any of those? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, you can? Yeah. So um, it's interesting. When I first came to Humboldt County um, to practice, I started working with Dr. Beverly Copeland. And she was a functional medicine MD. So thought outside the box, right? She had this extra training that let her look at labs differently, very similar to what naturopaths do. And, um, she was the first person to start treating Lyme disease in this area. One of her patients turned her on to and said, "Look into this." And she was like, "Oh my gosh." Um, and at that point, the only thing we really knew was antibiotics and more antibiotics, and two to three antibiotics at a time for years sometimes, which was, so hard on the body, right? And coming out of naturopathic medical school, I'm like, oh my god, all my naturopathic mentors are turning over in their graves because I'm using all these antibiotics. But it worked. It got people feeling better. It was really hard then for them to recover because of all of these antibiotics, even though I was doing a lot of naturopathic support. Now it's it's evolved into looking more at immune systems and um, and supporting from there. Like, why is your body not able to fight this off? So there's a lot of different things we're doing now and not just throwing antibiotics at them, unless it's an acute bite, right? Like if you come in, you got bit, you're tired, your joints are hurting, like all of these things can start happening within a couple of days then we'll start you on antibiotics cuz we want to stop that infection now and prevent that long-term chronic Lyme disease. Yeah.
1: And can people actually recover where they yes. no longer have it? They can. Yes. I had not heard that. Yes.
0: So they actually can recover. Now, conventional medicine will tell you two or 3 days of doxycycline an antibiotic and you're good to go. That's it. And then they'll say, "Oh, we're sorry you're still not feeling well. Well, that's post-Lyme syndrome and that's just how you're going to have to live the rest of your life, right? Um, the infectious disease specialist locally, no, I don't even know who it is now, but five years ago, 10 years ago, they would go, oh, no, there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. No, no, and they wouldn't even see the patient. You know, it's 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 so disheartening. You know, it's really sad when you see doctors just kind of going, ah, it's in your mind you don't know what you're talking about, you know, and it's these patients who are suffering. And it's their life. It's, it's, I it's my life. They don't want to hear, life. oh, this is
1: just how you're going to be living now. Yeah,
0: you know, what, what do you mean? And, and don't tell me it's all in my head and don't tell me there's nothing wrong with me because they wouldn't keep coming back to you if they were okay. You know, I'm sorry, there's not that many hypochondriacs in the world. <laughs> there just aren't. So, um, so we do fabulous. things. I love them.
1: Love my practice. So, mm. oh no, continue. So, I was going to say. So,
0: I talked about Dr. Um, Peachy because she does a lot of these chronic infections, and really, all of our doctors can address those things. But she's the one when we frequently interrefer in our office. It's like, okay, I think now you need to see Dr. Peachy. You know, I've kind of taken you as far as I can. Um, Dr. Deborah Ongersbach, she does these amazing. Regenerative injection therapies. So if you have chronic tendonitis or you have ligament injuries, torn cartilage, um, joint pain, those kind of things, she does these injection therapies, and one of them is or PRP, platelet-rich plasma, and that actually helps your body regenerate tendon and cartilage. So if you have tears or even... Um, cartilage that's thinned out, she draws blood, spins it down and is left with these, uh, this plasma that has all the growth hormones in it and injects it back into the body and it skits these growth hormones and these, these blood cells right to the areas that need attention, right? Because ligaments and cartilage and tendons don't have a good blood supply, you know, so when you first injure them, your body will send a bunch of its healing properties to it, and then it kind of forgets about it. You know it's like, oh okay, we've done our thing. And um so these injection therapies, prolotherapy as well, kind of inflames these areas again. It sends up little red flags to your immune system to come back to this area and heal it. And um, it's it's amazing. I, I get a lot. I'm an avid cyclist, so I'm always like hurting myself or overworking my joints and um, and actually I have a knee that I've been told is bone on bone and she does injections in them and it just helps and it's it's regenerative as opposed to a lot of people will get a cortisone injection right oh you have a shoulder injury do a cortisone injection that's fine it's great to decrease that inflammation initially but you can't do them long term because it degenerates the cartilage. It actually makes it worse over time. You can only do a certain number a year over your lifetime. Otherwise, you're going to destroy the cartilage that you do have. What she does is totally different. It's like, yeah, let's really go in there and regenerate it, and make it better and healthier. And it's so effective.
1: Is that kind of the same idea as using stem cells in so a localized spot?
0: Some people do you do this therapy with stem cells, Um Dr. Ongersbach does not do that. She doesn't find it necessary. And it increases the price immensely and trying to find the stem cells. It's just kind of – she doesn't do that. She finds that it's just not necessary and she gets really great results um, doing what she does. She's actually (laughs) – she came to me from Montana, from Billings, Montana, when I was advertising for a doctor to come join my practice – she wrote and said, "I've always wanted to live in Arcata." Who I'm says like, that? Oh my God! Who even knows where Arcata is? Like, other and wants to live here? It was crazy. And she was at the um, the Yellowstone Naturopathic Clinic in Billings for years and years, and um, they have a residency program at that office. And so she used to teach residents, you know, how to do PRP and prolotherapy. So she is just one of the best in the country. You know, to do this, so I felt very privileged that she's, she's part of our practice. Um, and then our last doctor, who's working with us, is Doctor Holtsky, Gabriel Hol- Holtsky. and um, he's amazing. He he loves kids. He loves to do pediatrics. So um, Doctor Ungersbach and Doctor Peachy and I love that because we would see pediatric patients. Um, you know, parents are always like, oh. And you see my child, so we don't have to just give him antibiotics or whatever. It's like, well, if he needs antibiotics, we'll probably give it to him. But yes, we're happy to see him. And we always had to say, we're not pediatricians. We don't know milestones. We don't know those basic kind of things that your pediatrician needs. So you need to have a pediatrician on board, and we'll see your child. But we can't be your child's pediatrician. Now we have Dr. Holsky, and he's amazing with kids. So... That's really great. And he does um, IV therapies. So we do nutritional IVs, um, which is also a really great addition to the office. So it's very exciting to see how the practice has grown and kind of progressed and branched out over the years.
1: How did you get started in naturopathic medicine? Oh,
0: that's so funny because I flashed on this this morning. Um, (laughs) I like to say it's my eighth career. (laughs) Who can do one career in their life? I think that's crazy. Um, I was in San Francisco, and I was a banquet, corporate banquet and catering manager. And um, it was such a fun job. I worked for Spectrum Foods, and they had MacArthur Park and Chow, and just all of these really great, diverse restaurants in the city. And um, I had a little bit of a falling out with my manager. She kept taking my my uh, commission away to hire a new person. I'm like, why don't you take some of your commission away to hire this person? And so I ended up quitting, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it kind of released me from that area. And I thought, okay, what do you want to do? And I realized I wanted to do natural medicine, and I didn't even know about naturopathic medicine at the time. And um, I was going to start the program at San Francisco State, And then I just started reading more and I found out about naturopathic medicine. And at the time, it wasn't even licensed in California. So you couldn't be a naturopathic doctor in California at the time. That was in the 90s. And um, so I went back to school and, you know, it takes a while when you're an older student to actually get through school. And went to San Francisco City College, then came up here to Humboldt and got my undergrad from Humboldt so I'm an HSU alumna and um and then I left. I was actually going to go to Portland for medical school for the naturopathic Medical School. It was um, National College of naturopathic Medicine at the time now it's National University of something some, I don't know they keep changing names on me and um So I was planning on going there, and then somebody said, oh, you should check out the school in Arizona. And I thought, oh, Arizona, okay. (laughs) And they kind of won me over. So I ended up going to Phoenix, to Mace, uh, actually Tempe, for um, medical school. The hardest thing of medical school was living in Arizona. It was horrific. It was horrific. Um, So hot, so hot. Every time I'd look outside, it was like, oh, what a gorgeous day. Let's go outside. And... He'd open the door and it was like, ooh, blast of 120 degrees. Let's go back, hide in the cave, close all the shades. It was it was horrific. Um, so anyway, graduated from there, came back to Humble because I knew I wanted to be and live in this area, and that's kind of where I started with naturopathic medicine. And uh, before I before I actually moved back, before I graduated, I started reaching out to doctors in the area so I could say, hey, what's it like? having your practice, what do I need to do? And the first doctor I called was Dr. Beverly Copeland and um, her receptionist said, oh, we're looking for a natural doctor right now. And I'm like, well, here I am, right? You know, I naturopathic medical school and she'd been looking for a doctor or a PA or a nurse practitioner, I think for three years by the time I went in and she just couldn't find who she wanted. And, um, I went in for a little interview and a meet and greet and she showed me the office and she showed me the office I would have and the exam room I would have. And I always say, poor Beverly, she never stood a chance after that point because I'm really good at manifesting, right? So I went home and started like visualizing walking into the office and saying good morning and going to my office. And there I am today. She retired seven years ago. And left me the practice, and I promptly made it into a naturopathic medical practice, and hired Dr. Peachy, and then Dr. Ongersbach, and eventually Dr. Holtzky, and that's where we are now. The rest is history. We're kind of packed to the packed to the gills right now. <laughs> Don't know how I could make any better use out of the space we have. But oh, we're also oh, maybe I won't say this yet. Never mind. <laughs> we just started something new, but I'm not. Quite ready to let the public know about it yet, so still working out the case well, yeah, yeah, um, I can talk to you about it off, but, but, yeah, I don't want it to say anything now because we'll get overwhelmed and um, I'm going to let the individual practices
1: know when I'm ready to to go there so back when you started, you couldn't even be a practitioner Mm-mm. of naturopathic medicine no, nope. is that out of a stigma again, because it seems like it was such a separate world from like an MD.
0: It is a separate world. It's it's interesting. And it's still, even though we're licensed in California, and I think we got our license in 2000, it was actually just before I went to medical school. So it was around 2003, four, five, something like that. I should know. But um, where California actually started licensed naturopathic medicines. And we're licensed in over 30, 35 states right now. Um, And every state has a different scope of practice for these doctors. It's really hard. It's really confusing. The most, the fullest scopes of practice are in the states of Washington, Oregon, and Arizona, where all the schools are. And they basically can prescribe freely. They can do the minor surgery that they were taught in medical school. They can use their acupuncture and actually call it acupuncture where they they work. Um, And in California, we have kind of a limited scope for writing prescriptions. Um, To write controlled substance, we have to have an oversight MD to have on on board, which is kind of weird. Like our oversight MD is in Connecticut. (laughs) She lived here and then she moved and, you know, it's like she looks at our controlled substance prescriptions and Our other prescriptions and, you know, says something to us if we're like, you know, maybe you should try this part or do this. And we're like, oh, okay. Um, But it's kind of weird, right? Um, Otherwise, we can't do minor surgery. So we can't do suturing. We can't do a punch biopsy, all of these really kind of basic things that we were totally taught in medical school and know how to do. But we can't do it with our scope of practice here. So, um, we refer a lot to our local dermatologists, um, you know, again, minor sur- or surgeons, whatever, for whatever you need. Um, it doesn't really—we're considered primary care doctors in California, and yet there's still a lot of things that haven't changed. So some of the basic, um, like state disability papers or DMV handicap placards or— these really kind of basic things, um, because they have not changed the paperwork that includes naturopathic doctors in the signature line, we can't fill those out. It's, it's very interesting. We For a long time, I would just you know sign my name, put my state license, because hello, California, you have licensed me to be the primary care doctor. Um, and for a long time, they let that go. And now there's somebody in the state um, who's like, nope you're not on our little list, you can't do it. And it's like, there's podiatrists and chiropractors and midwives and, you know, acupuncturists on this list who are not licensed primary care doctors. You know, they're licensed, but we can't sign it. It's And it's such, it's so hard for our patients, right? Like I've been seeing some of my patients for 15 years, 15 years, is that right? 13, 14 years, I guess. And, you know, if something happens where they need state disability and I'm the one who's been seeing them and knows the most about them, I can't fill out that piece of paper. They have to go and find another doctor. I generally write up the history for that doctor so they know what's going on. And then that doctor can sign it. It's so unfair. So... Our, we have a state legi- We have a state association, and they're continually working on expanding our scope, getting it in line with what we've been trained to do. So,
1: is that out of a lack of specific training that would have been applied had you gone down the MD route, or they just want people to go down the traditional medicine? So, route?
0: Um, it, it's a. I think it's a feeling of being threatened. So, the AMA um, is uh, the. Um, The CMA, the California Medical Association, and actually the acupuncturists are really kind of fearful of having us be licensed. So, you know, lobbyists, the politics, you know, so the the money, so the CMA, you know, California Medical Association has a lot of money. And they throw it at blocking our things, you know, they're like, who are these people? And, yet, you know, why are they trying to get their doctor and why do they want to do this and that? And it's like, we actually have more education than you do. <laughs> you know, we have equal in a lot and, you know, like nutrition, well, they get an hour of nutrition and it's, you know, major focus of what we do. Um So it's it's a feeling of being threatened, I think, more than anything else. And slowly, they're kind of warming up to us, and you know. But it's hard, and it's all about lobbyists and who has the most money to throw at it. And so, you know, we're a small association. I don't know. I think there's just over a thousand, fifteen hundred naturopaths now in California. Um, I'm like. Number three hundred and ninety. So <laughs> I've been around for a while. I guess it was kind of interesting, um, but yeah, it's it's politics more than anything, more than anything. And I don't know why they don't look at like Oregon and um, Washington, and why they don't they don't just follow suit? And we need more doctors. You know, like if if I couldn't do what I was doing up here in Humboldt County. 3,000 patients would be left without a doctor, you know, and these are patients who cannot find. You can't find a primary care, you know, and I love Open Doors so much. They do so much for our county, Um, but they have this huge waiting list, you know, and it's like, well, get on the waiting list, you know, get on the waiting list, especially for a Medicare patient. So here's another really weird thing Um, because the federal government – Doesn't quite acknowledge us as naturopathic doctors anywhere in any of the states, um, even though we're on their official, what is it, their official vocational book. um, They haven't recognized us, so we can't take Medicare. We can't see, well, we can see Medicare patients, but they have to pay us cash Um, I can write prescriptions for Medicare patients. Like I can write their thyroid prescription, no problem, but can I order a lab to double-check to make sure that thyroid level is now controlled where it's supposed to be? No. Write their prescriptions. Thank you, pharmaceutical companies. They've pushed that through, but I can't order a lab and have it covered by Medicare. My patients have to pay cash for that, or I always recommend that they have a, a Medicare provider. Like. Somebody at Open Door, and we work really well with the um, the practitioners at Open Door, and so frequently I can write them a note and say, "Oh, you know, I'm seeing our mutual patient. Could you order these labs?" Blah blah blah, and most of them are just great with that, and will do run their labs for them. Um, so. Open Door has actually started referring patients to us in the last couple of years. They're like, you know, we just don't have the time to figure this out. You should go see the doctors over at North Coast Naturopathic. And that makes me feel good, right, when when I see more and more of the local people acknowledging us and seeing what we can do for their patients because we work in collaboration. You know, we're not trying to take patients away. We're trying to get the patients feeling better. That's our goal. You know, we refer to p- people if we think, nope, you need to see somebody else. It's not about, you know, keeping you for myself. It's about getting them better.
1: Well, I think there's kind of a stigma that surrounds naturopathic medicine, at least from an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. You hear that and then you start thinking holistic and then you go down this rabbit hole. of It's not real medicine. Like that's, You need to go to a real doctor and get yeah. prescribed something and then yeah. that's going to fix you. And And so it makes sense that there would be that conflict of, hey, we're here, we're helping people.
0: And it's finding, I always say, make sure they're licensed in the state of California. Um, I've actually had to report a couple of people who called themselves doctors of naturopathic medicine. And when you look, they had like online degrees and they're like, oh, we're doctorates. You know, I got my doctorate online here and I got my doctorate online there and I just talked to my patients, like, do you really want to see a doctor who never put their hands on anybody, who's never had any, like, anatomy labs or, you know, in-person clinic training to be your doctor? You know, you, you need to kind of do your research. Um, there are a lot of great consultants, nutritional consultants, whatever, and they'll say they're doing natural medicine or are a naturopathic consultant, as long as you don't call yourself a doctor, naturopathic doctor, um, you can kind of get away with it. But as soon as you start calling yourself a doctor of naturopathic medicine um, or an ND, um, that's where you can get in trouble. And I've reported people because it's like, I'm sorry, you get my quarter million dollars in student debt, and then we can talk, right?
1: (laughs) Well, they're bringing down the practice as a whole well right? they if are they're just yeah. kind of a fraud yeah
0: most definitely a fraud and you know it 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 kind of gets my back up and kind of irritated but uh you know in the end I need to just put my focus where my patients are and you know I keep my eye out there and kind of check to see and talk with my patients about who they might be seeing and some of them are great you know okay great. You know, if this nutritionist or dietitian is really helping you, great. You know, and then when you want labs done, come back to me. <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's a collaboration. Um, but it's what you said is really true. It's, it's hard to keep the field clear enough, you know, because it's really hard to call yourself a medical doctor, an MD, and just get away with it if you don't have the licensing. And um, certainly there are a few people don't have their license and they're practicing. Very few, you know, but you hear about that every so often, oh, this person was calling themselves a doctor and they weren't licensed. The same thing happens with naturopathic medicine. And I think it's just important for people to do their homework to really kind of look and, you know, people love to put that line of letters after their name. That's always kind of suspicious, right? It's like, what? (laughs) Why do you have to have all these letters? Oh, you're certified something and then certified this. And, you know, if you're truly a doctor, you have doctor of naturopathic medicine and you have the school that you attend. So that's the other thing that almost always distinguishes a, a doctor of naturopathic medicine who's licensed is we will always put the school that we attended and it's an accredited medical school. We have to pass boards to get it we have to pass license or test to get our license and then we have to renew it. We have to con- do um, a certain amount of continuing, edu- ed- continuing education every couple of years to keep our licenses up to date like any professional. right? So that's the kind of thing you need to look for.
1: Is there any substantial difference between an ND and an MD in terms of the education or what you could practice?
0: Yeah, so... Um, our education is is very equivalent. We tend to have more nutritional education. You know, I think MDs get like an hour in, in school. We get a lot of nutritional because we believe, you know, you, your nutrition has to be up there. Um, surgery, we do minor surgeries. We do not do – we are not surgeons, right? We are not doing cardiovascular surgery, thoracic surgery. You know, amputate. we are not doing that kind of thing. You don't want us around. <laughs> we can get you stable if something's going on. But we're not emergency medicine doctors. We're not surgeons. Um, we love conventional medicine because it's kind of miraculous what they can do now with surgery. Um, other things. So we don't tend to specialize, right? We have a couple of... Um, Specializations that you can get um, your fellow in. Like we have cancers, who are oncologists who have done extra training and have passed extra um, board exams to become a fellow in oncology or endocrinology. And I think we have one, I don't know, there's a couple that you can actually get pretty specialized in. Um, There are a couple of naturopathic doctors who actually work in big um, conventional hospitals. Um, There's one who works at the OHSU up in um, the hospital up in Portland. Um, One doctor was uh, working, kind of specializing in cardiology and worked with a lot of cardiologists at a major hospital in Washington, the state of Washington. So they kind of make their own pathways and get into these places but they're not doing cardio cardiology and surgery in these hospitals right they're um, kind of putting their own expertise and what we do in with the the mds so there is a big difference
1: my understanding of that difference is that if you want preventative care it would be naturopathic (laughs) medicine and general wellness and then if you need like a surgery or you have cancer then you would maybe go to the MD for that
0: for definitely those things. We are definitely about preventative medicine. Definitely like fix the problem before it becomes a problem. Um, you know, and frequently MDs are like watch and wait. And when it's like, Oh, when your labs are actually over that reference, you know, when they're in the warning sign, then we'll treat it. And it's like, why do that? Why not treat it before? Cause you can watch the labs changing. Um, but we we also treat things, you know, um, so we treat acute illnesses, we treat pneumonia, we treat um, infections, we treat ear infections, bladder infections. I mean, these acute things as well that come up. Um, like I said, we really can treat most things get, that come through the door. Um, and when they're emergent, when... You know, we can tell, no, this is neurological, this is going into, you know, cardiac arrest, whatever like that. We are sending them off, right? We are not seeing these patients. Um, and then they come back to us. Even with oncology cancer patients, um, there are a few doctors who treat cancer. We don't treat cancer in our office. We do a lot of supportive therapies. And we recommend to our patients that they see a specialist, either Conventional oncologist or a naturopathic oncologist, because some people really don't want to go the way. And yet, there's times when you need radi- you know, radiation or chemotherapy. I mean, it can save your life. And we would be more than happy to support them to help the side effects of some of these really crazy treatments, right? Um, there's things that you can do to support the body to make them a little bit less horrific, but they'll save your life. You know, um, and then there's times it's like, well, you know, that that could be an option, but it's not a cure. So also being really clear with patients, because a lot of oncologists will just say, you got to do this. You got to do that. And then they turn around say, I would never do this treatment, you know, because it's kind of like you're past that stage. But so that sounds horrible. But, you know, it's it's kind of what am i trying to say so i guess hearing the truth truly is is most important having supportive care when that's necessary um yeah so cancer's a tough one um but we're always screening for it we always do the preventative testing for um for that and and try to keep our patients up you know we can do like women's annual exams um their pap exam we can do male exams you know we physical exams are part of our thing you know we do those very well it's part of our preventative care medicine for sure
1: if somebody comes in with an acute illness is there a difference in your approach than from that perspective of like a general family doctor
0: yeah um so it can be different it can be the same um it kind of depends where they are in that acute infection Um, A lot of times we recommend, so we do a lot of herbal treatment. Like one of my favorite places in my office is our medicinary that has thousands of botanical tinctures and homeopathy. And they're incredibly strong, good medicine. And um, so frequently we will treat bladder infections and upper respiratory infections, colds, flus, whatever, with botanical medicine, with some nutritional supplements. Um, we have some really cool hydrotherapy treatments that we could use as well, and and then we monitor really closely. You know, we have that patient check in with us, and if they're not getting better, um, if you know, if it's turning into pneumonia, then yeah, we'll probably start you on antibiotics, right? We're we're not going to say, oh, no, we can do it with herbs. It's like, no, we know the point when we need to go. Okay. This needs antibiotics. And sometimes patients come in to us and they're like, you know, I know I could take the herbs, but I kind of just need to get this over and done with. And the antibiotics are going to be covered by my insurance, right? And the herbs could be kind of pricey. So we go like, great. If that's what you want, we'll start you on the antibiotics. We'll give you some probiotics so that your gut flora isn't totally disseminated, wiped out, um, And because we want to keep our gut nice and happy with all those good beneficial bacteria. And so we'll start them on both of those things, right? Um, So it really depends. We we love our natural medicine. We know the limitations of it. Um, Blood pressure stuff, you know, it's like, yeah, I have really great herbal medicine for blood pressure and it can be pricey, you know, getting... The herbs can be a couple hundred dollars a month. Why do that if you can pay $5 for your copay and get Losartan, right? And it does the same thing. I have some patients who prefer the herbs and they'd much rather pay the money than use the Losartan. It's their choice, right? So we give them
1: more options. Are the herbs in most cases equally as effective?
0: Yes. They can even be more effective, right? Is that
1: hard getting that? Through to your patient? I mean, do patients come in and just think, "Oh, the only option is meds, and then you bring up herbs? Not
0: really. Not the patients that come to us. Sometimes we talk to them about it, and we we're not ever going to strong arm somebody into it. But with the herbs, you know, so many of the medications we have come from herbs, right? Like aspirin. It's willow bark. It's a tree. And what they found was that, oh, the salicylic acid that comes out of the willow bark, we can just like isolate that and pop it in a pill and then they're all going to get better. And it works really well. But if you take the whole herb, you're going to get so much more benefit, right? Because Mother Nature kind of knows. We're going to put some buffering things in here. So maybe it's not so hard on your stomach taking it all the time. And it helps support the rest of the immune system. There's frequently other actions these herbs have. And... um a lot of these drugs start with plants. I mean, just across the board, digitalis, right? Well, that's that beautiful little flower that you see in your garden. Um, it's strong cardiac medicine that they then isolated and put into a pill. So um, that that happens a lot. Patients who come to see us frequently are just are seeing us because they want an alternative, right? They like hearing all of the alternatives they have. So, yes, we could do um, the medications or we could do this. So we try to lay out their options, you know, and we give them the pros and cons of both. And then they have the choice. They get this great choice, you know. Years and years of antibiotics and being thrown an antibiotic every time you have a cold, which is a virus, which antibiotics antibacterial <laughs> does not help a virus at all you know so we help you know educate our patients and let them see the difference between um antibiotics and antivirals and where things can be helpful and well why are you getting a cold every 3 months you know what's going on that you're getting this or why are you having a sinus infection chronically um, I don't want to just keep throwing antibiotics at you, even though it could be very helpful and get rid of it. <clears throat> we then step back and go, okay, let's look at this underlying issue. And that's really where we always go. Where is this underlying cause of infection, right? What What's going on there? And how can we optimize your body so your immune system can fight these viruses? You know, you put three people in a room and one person gets horribly sick from a cold and the other two people are fine, what's going on there, right? It's, it's how your immune system is reacting to things and how you're dealing with the stress in your life and are you getting enough exercise to help alleviate that stress. We, we kind of talk to them about all this. Our appointments are really long, as you, <laughs> as you can imagine. Which isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, right? Because you, I always think... How can a doctor figure anything out in five minutes? You know, you go in and they're like, you can give us one problem and you've got 10 minutes, go. You know, and you're like, oh, but my head and my stomach hurts. It's like, I only have time for one problem. What are we going to talk about today? And usually these things are like together because there's a bigger issue, right? It's not just
1: the stomach. It's not
0: just the head. Um, so our new patient appointments are an hour and a half long. Sometimes a little bit longer.
1: Um, I don't think I've ever talked to my primary care physician for even close to that yeah, amount of time.
0: Yeah. Well, never. Never. An hour and a half would be the equivalent of seeing, I don't know, something like 20 patients or something. I don't know, know some... if I've
1: spent that much time with any doctor, actually, now that <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Maybe
0: a shrink, you know. Well, that's 50 minutes. But um, but we we do a lot. We we. We t- our intake is a lot about history. What illnesses have you had before? What's your antibiotic history? Do you have a chronic yeast infection going on because you've been on antibiotics twenty times since you were two years old? So all of that is super important. And
1: oops, we're good. It was empty. Thank God.
0: <laughs> uh, and you know, so uh, oh, what was I going to say? So um, just figuring out what's going on so frequently is like we need to listen to the patient's story because we'll we'll get these little clues along the way and then for the patient to actually be heard i've had so many patients just cry in my office and say i've i've never had a doctor just listen to me and hear my story and sometimes that's all we do you know i'll have patients come in and, you know, it's for this, but we, I end up sitting there and listening for 40 minutes, just hearing what's going on in their life right now. Cause, you know, it's, it's big what we carry around with us. And if you don't have somebody who can hear that and not be judgmental and not necessarily try to fix it, I mean, I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not trying to fix something, but just hearing it for them is, Incredibly empowering for them, you know. And sometimes I could tell them a few things, you know, maybe help them sort things out. That's great too. Um, But yeah, and even our follow up appointments rarely are they shorter than forty five or sixty minutes, because we have treatment plans. You know, we send patients out. They can be kind of overwhelming sometimes, with things that we want them to work on, right? From nutrition to exercise to um, starting some different supplements, right? And then maybe labs. You know, we do a lot of specialty labs as well, stool testing, saliva testing, um, just blood work. So a lot of different tests that get deeper than your basic lab tests, right? We look, at, we look in the stool, is, how is your gut bacteria? Do you have an infection going on that's showing up there? We look at saliva for adrenal function, right? Uh, Why are you chronically fatigued? Oh, look at your adrenals are like flatline. They're not responding the way they're supposed to. Kind of like mine in medical school. (laughs) They're better now. So um, yeah, we spend, it it takes a lot of time to do what we do. And, but we get really good results. And that's why patients keep coming back to us. And our biggest referral is from friends and family of patients that we already see it's kind of amazing
1: i love it i love my practice. <laughs> where did that shift come from where we moved away from herbal treatments in some cases <sighs> to just prescribing pills because for most of human history that's yeah. what we did and then there's this weird paradigm shift where now to think about taking plant medicine you're some fringe yeah. Woo-woo skeptic yeah. of modern medicine.
0: It was a paradigm shift. You absolutely have that correct. Um, most of the world uses the kind of medicine we do, right? Especially the more indigenous peoples who haven't been overwhelmed by cultural society. But it, it actually happened around the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. And um, there was actually a lot of naturopaths at the time and a lot of homeopathic Um, doctors. And it's when the AMA came into being, right? The American Medical Association. And they started shutting down like Hahnemann Hospital. I think it's in Pennsylvania. Um, So Hahnemann was a homeopathic doctor. He's the one who developed homeopathic medicine, which is taking an element, a plant essence, and diluting it down infinitesimally. So, if you're looking at it at a chemical point of view, there are no moles, no of the smallest little measurement left in that diluted substance of the original substance. So, like you could take mercury, you add a little, you know, a little bit of mercury, put it in water, you shake it, and you keep diluting it and diluting it, diluting it. And if you look at that in, what are they called, a the chromatography, where they can see how many moles of that mercury is left in there, there's really no, nothing left in it. But that the water, the substance, has the vibration of the original. And so you, with homeopathy, you match the person's symptoms. Um, a real easy instance is coffee, homeopathic coffee, right? So if you drink too much coffee, you feel anxious and a little jittery and you can't sleep and your mind is racing, right? It's a great sleep remedy. So I'm asking my patients, so are you just not sleeping at night? Is your mind racing? Do you lay down and start getting anxious? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll give them homeopathic coffee, which is this very, very, very dilute equivalent of coffee. And they put these little pellets under their tongue, and they go to sleep, right? So it's like treating like homeopathic. And um, so Hahnemann developed this source of medicine. They had a homeopathic hospital in Pennsylvania, Hahnemann Hospital, and then at the turn of the century, they basically outlawed homeopathy, Right even though it saved millions and millions of people in the flu pandemic of what was it 1912 that really horrific flu pandemic yep it was homeopathy that saved more people than anything else it was it's kind of crazy and then you know medical doctors they were like all oh, these natural doctors they're quacks you know what are they doing we need to keep bleeding people and using leeches and you know like really it was the medical doctors who were kind of like, really, let's just bleed more people, or you know, doing kind of old archaic things, or new, crazy things. Um, so, yeah, that was the paradigm shift, you know. And so, um, naturopaths got outlawed; they became um, start running from the law, basically, and kind of practicing underneath, you know, kind of in the background. Um, and then now we're just slowly coming back up it's a hard thing to, f- to fight those paradigm shifts
1: so was it all just the money aspect of if we can condense it down into this pill form we can well, sell more and people can't grow their own medicine
0: certainly i mean pharmaceutical companies are all about that they're they're all about that um they're trying to actually outlaw vitamins right now the fda is. i had not heard that <laughs> yep they're working really hard at doing that they're um there's a lot of things that the f d a is doing to try to take away natural medicine, mm-hmm. saying it's you know it's dangerous, you can't do that. They'll take it off the market. We've had several of our own supplement things taken off the market, and then oh, it shows up as a pharmaceutical thing right where they can they t- tweak it. You can't copyright anything natural right so um. So, But they can take that chemical compound, that molecule, and tweak it a little bit, add a little benign something to it, and then they can copyright it because it's no longer the natural element. Pharmaceutical companies love to do that. Um, fish oil, you know, they we still can use fish oil, but the pharmaceutical companies now have pharmaceutical-grade fish oil, right, because they kind of tweaked it a little bit and they can get more money from it. It's It's kind of insane. Why it all happened around the turn of the century, I'm not really sure. Is it more of a money grab? Was it, you know, financial? I'm sure money is always there. It's usually follow, at the bottom follow of the, the money trail, right? So that was probably part of it. Um, I wish I could go back in my memory because we actually had a lot of this in in medical school. You know, the history and philosophy of naturopathic medicine, and I can't remember exactly. Those things that led up to it. But I know there was um, a lot of changes in the law being outlawed, you know, and I I just find it hysterical, like Hahnemann Hospital is still called Hahnemann Hospital, (laughs) even though homeopathy is not used there at all.
1: Have you noticed a change recently, post-COVID, in this world where people are more obese than ever people are sicker than ever has there been a turn back to you guys where Um, modern medicine has? i mean it's just you're just taking pills yeah in some sense
0: certainly i don't know if it's happened since covid um since that's so recent actually still um i I think there's a lot of people who really want to make changes in their life and they're really tired of seeing a doctor who doesn't know, who doesn't, who wants to put him on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. Um, and they really want to figure out what's going on. And they want to do something other than just drugs. Um, not all of our patients, you know, we have a spectrum of patients. And some are like anything they can do not to take a drug. Um, and others are like, eh, you know, I'm OK with that, but I, I want to optimize where I am. And if I can get off these drugs, yay, because I want to do that. Um, and there's that whole spectrum in between. So and you have to be willing to change if you're coming in to see us. It's a lot of hard work, right? I mean, there's always going to be that population who says, no, give me the pill.
1: It's easy. I don't
0: want to diet. I want to sit on my couch and drink beer and watch TV all day. Um, Yay, good for you. But then there's a lot of people who say, no, I really do want to change and I know it's really hard. And it can take years, you know, to really – I can talk to my patients and say almost the same thing some of my patients i love my patients and um you know i'll be saying oh you should do this you should do this and the next time they come back it's like well you know you really should do this and and, and then one day they'll come in they'll go oh doctor edgar i just did this and sometimes it's because oh i started seeing this nutritionist and she said i should stop eating gluten and oh my god i feel great and i just i smile And I laugh to myself because I think I've been telling you that for five years. (laughs) But yay. You know, sometimes it just takes that point in time, maybe a different voice. When you're ready to hear it and you're ready to make that change, yay, right? I will just sit there and work with you wherever you are and get you through that. And then they make these amazing changes. And um, I have a lot of patients who are just like, a few patients who are like, literally, you saved my life. And literally, I did because we were able to figure out the chronic infection they had. And um, I'm thinking of one patient in particular, and he was so sick. And um, his parents are like, why are you seeing this naturopath? You need to see a real doctor. You need to see it. And this was an adult man. And he said, OK. And I said, no, you should go see this doctor, you know get another evaluation, do what you need to do. And this doctor ran all of these other tests. A few of them are like, oh, that was a good idea. I hadn't thought about that test. That was a great idea. And he did all these tests. He goes, yeah, no, you have chronic fatigue. You know, you'll be fine. You have chronic fatigue. And the guy was like dying before our eyes. I mean, it was so hard to see how sick he was. He, He could barely breathe. And we just kept working and very slowly at working over this um, infection. And today he's fine. I mean, you know, he's still kind of struggling with a little bit of energy and things, but doing so well, so well. And, you know, he's saved my life. And, you know, so we do amazing things for our patients and we work with them where they are at the at the tempo they
1: need to be moved along, I guess. Well, there's that famous quote where you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right? right? That's just right. The you can keep showing them the
0: water. It's like, oh, there's some good water over here. It
1: help you if you drink some. It
0: really help you. Oh, and water is a huge thing, right? Drink a little bit more. How many water. people
1: don't drink enough water? Oh,
0: everybody, everybody. I. I struggle with it myself, you know, and I like to think I drink a lot of water and some days I drink more and other days I don't drink enough. And I only drink water, you know. I'm I'm not a soda drinker. Oh, well, I drink coffee. I love my morning coffee. Um, And no, we don't take coffee away from everybody, you know. It's like, well, you might want to cut back on your coffee. Maybe you don't want to be tr- drinking coffee at 5 o'clock at night when you're trying to go to bed. Um, but, and I actually heard... Huberman, what is his name? Dan Huberman? No,
1: I, yeah, the yeah, Huberman Huberman Lab. Lab. yeah, yeah, Huberman Lab, yeah, great he, podcast.
0: He's brilliant, right? I have my own little things about him, but he was talking. Andrew at, Huberman, sorry, to Andrew. You. Huberman, yeah. thank you. Um, he was saying recently, or on one of his podcasts, that um, you actually do get water benefit from drinking coffee. You know, the um, it's the chemical molecule of caffeine itself. That's doing other things, but you actually are getting a benefit of drinking. I was like, "Yeah, so happy to hear that." <laughs> but um,
1: yeah, I've actually implemented some of his caffeine protocols around that. Like, I don't take caffeine within the first ninety minutes of waking up. I don't take it within twelve hours of going to bed. And you, there's ninety a tangible minutes difference. of
0: waking up. Interesting, because I thought he was all about caffeine and exercise and fasting, exercise and drinking caffeine. I haven't listened to all of his. He he is brilliant. He he's a brilliant man. I have to say, when okay, I'm going to go off on a little spiel here because um, it's my newest passion is when he starts talking and and about exercise, right? And he's had some amazing. What was this guy he had on for this series? He was, Peter Atia, not a Tia. He he's an exercise physiologist. He has this amazing lab. I think it's Stanford. Um, And he doesn't see sick people. He only sees athletes because he's all about optimizing. And he like had an eight series thing with him or something. Um, But everything was geared towards men. So here I am, postmenopausal woman, right? And it wasn't until 2016, 2016, this day and age, that there was ever any exercise research done on females right? Everything else prior to 2016 was done on males by males for everyone, right? It's sort of like, yeah, we tested birth control pills on male rats. Well, hello, what is that? And she, so Stacey Sims, she's a PhD and she was working on her doctorate at Stanford and she was doing all of these exercise research things with females. And these dudes would walk by and they're like, What are you doing? We have this information already. You know, those women, those hormones, it's just going to fuck up your life, right? You know, what are you doing? It's so much work. She goes, Exactly. We are not little men. We have hormones. We work differently. We need new research. And she's been putting out phenomenal information for not just menopausal, postmenopausal, perimenopausal women, but all stages because oh, women have cycles, right? With these hormones. And some days are better to exercise and really go all out. And other days are better to like hang back and do some recovery, depending on where you are in these exor- in, in your cycles. And um, she goes on to talk about, you know, like, Huberman loves the fasting exercise, right? And he's like, yeah, it's a great thing. And I'm yelling at the radio, going, only for men only for men. Our physiology is different and we do not do well when we're doing fasting exercise. We have these bodies that think we are being starved to death and we start, you know, like clumping down and um, conserving energy and such, right? Because we're these baby makers and baby carriers. So we're kind of built to do different things. So we actually need energy, food, before we start doing these exercises. And, you know, if you're postmenopausal, you actually need to do, you know, a certain amount of protein and carbohydrates before you go into a hard workout. And then within a half an hour, you need to be eating a lot of protein, like 20 to 40 grams of protein right out, especially if you're doing strength exercising, right? You need to get that protein back into your body, some carbohydrates. Again, Huberman's like, you know, as long as you get some in during the day, you're good. Mm -hmm. Yelling at the radio, like, no, you know, you need to qualify this, dude. Men, women, we're different. So um, it's one of my new passions right now. And I actually just submitted um, a talk to one of the conferences I go to. So I hope I can help spread that information because overall people need more protein. Women especially need more protein.
1: Need more protein and need more exercise.
0: Need more exercise and different kinds of exercise. So as we go into menopause and we lose estrogen, which is this anabolic muscle building. I hope I got that one right. Um, The muscle building, tissue building hormone, right? Um, And you lose it and you start losing muscle. And all these women are like, I was so strong. I had these muscles and now suddenly I have nothing. And it's because you don't have the estrogen. And so you need to LHS, lift heavy stuff. um, And you need to really lift heavy weights like these little weights that are good for definition. That's all fine and good, but you need the power. You need the strength. You need to build muscle. And so for postmenopausal women, it's super important. Also, um, I do a lot of cycling, you know, and when I was training for a ride last year, It was a 10-day ride up in Canada, and I was carrying all my own gear. So it was like 50 pounds on my bike, lots of elevation gain, over 23,000 feet of elevation, right? Lots. And my friend and I were training, and we were training, and we're like, oh, my God. We just got to get out there every day with our bikes loaded and ride every hill we have and do hill repeats. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. And we were exhausted. We were exhausted. And I met up with this um, cycling coach who follows Stacey Sims. And she's like, yeah, no, honey, that is not how you train for a ride, you know. And I said, oh, well, how do you do that? What can I do in the next 10 days before my ride? She goes like, yeah, no, that horse has left the barn. Not much you can do now. And I started working with her after that. And it's about – so you need to do high-intensity interval training. Super important. These really long endurance rides, you need to do them because you need the hours under your, under your butt and your butt in the saddle and kind of building those calluses. And you need to have that but not every day, right? You, again, men do really well with these long endurance type rides as a training mechanism for women. Not so much, right? Our training, we need to do high-intensity interval training. We need to do sprint training, you know, up and down stairs or run for a blocker. I don't run at all, but cycle really hard. You know, I do everything on a bike. And, um, you know, do all out for 20 seconds, 10 seconds recovery, 20 seconds all out. Do that eight times and then recover. And then do it again eight times and then recover. You know, so you're only doing these four-minute exercise verse, um, but super, super important for women. We need to do different things than what men do, you know, and it's finally being researched and it's out there. She has two books, Roar, R-O-A-R, and Next Level, and I highly recommend those books. And finding her on podcasts, and Stacey Sims, I'm going to say it again because she's my hero right now. <laughs> I've yeah. gotten strong. I've gotten fast. It's well, it's amazing. important
1: and you want to try to keep that up as you get older, especially, you know, oh. your body just starts to deteriorate if yeah. you don't.
0: Yeah. I actually just started doing it when I got older. I was I'm in better shape now than I've ever been in my life. I was never an athlete before and now I'm I over Memorial Day weekend I um rode a century mile ride on my bike. And then the next day I rode my brand new gravel bike for seventy five miles.
1: Wow. It was next awesome. Day.
0: Yeah. Next day, and with the the help of my coach, I fueled right. So I was exhausted after the hundred miles. I have to say, um, did what I needed to do for recovery that day, and iced my legs and ate correctly. Fueled right during the ride, like you know, after the first hour, you need to eat every thirty minutes. It's really hard to eat that much, um, but your body needs it, right? You just need to keep fueling your body. And went to bed, and the next morning, my friend and I were like, I feel great. You know, because after the 100 miles, we're like, well, maybe we'll do 50 tomorrow. We'll just see, you know. And we woke up, and we're like, oh, my God, we feel great. We'll make the decision at the mile marker that we have to go left or right. And we were like, yeah, let's do this. And so there we were, 75 miles the next day, 62. Rocking it. I love it. <laughs>
1: that's incredible it you, is. you were eating every 30 minutes were you eating those little goo packs or whatever no,
0: i i prefer real food so here we are again, good call. real food um i actually got yelled at by my coach you know she was like what what are you fueling with because i was i just bonked on one of my little training peloton rides and she's like what are you what are you eating tell me again what you're eating i told her she said where are your carbohydrates i i don't see carbohydrates and and this was like Two days before I'm supposed to leave to drive up to Klamath Falls, where this ride was, and um, and she goes, oh, oh, we gotta get some fuel into you, and so she sent me all of these little Powerball, Power Bar recipes. So that night, and it was funny when she was asking me where my carbs were. I was digging through my <laughs> digging through all my cupboards, going, oh my god, I have no carbs. Like, oh, I have oatmeal. I didn't even have oatmeal, right? I was It was kind of hysterical. I, I have bananas frozen. I know I have frozen bananas. And like no carbs in my house. Lots of proteins, lots of veggies, lots of good fats. Not so much just plain carbs. So anyway, I made up bags and bags of little Power Balls and, and Power Bars, oatmeal and, um, what was it, oatmeal and coconut and some molasses and, you know, just different variations of that, and then also boiled potato, the little tiny potatoes, boiled a bunch of those up, Put and I weighed everything to make sure I was getting what I needed, you know, 20 to, what was it, 10 to, no, 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates was what I was supposed to be eating every half hour. So I weighed things out, weighed out these little tiny potatoes and dumped a bunch of salt in them. Those were my best. They were my favorite. So I packed up, you know, you got your little kit jersey on and you got your little rear pockets. Mine were bulging out. I'm like, how am I going to carry this stuff, right? And I'd just grab a bag and it'd be something sweet and I'd eat that in a half an hour. And on my little bike computer, it pops up, eat, hydrate, eat. I was like, oh, God, just shut up. I just ate. I think I just ate. And um, But it kept me going. It was so good. I felt so good the next morning. And um, I do a lot of hydration tablets, you know, like noon tablets. Yeah, those
1: salt tablets. Yeah, and stuff.
0: salt tablets. But you need the, you know, you need the minerals. You also need sugar in your electrolyte tablets, which a lot of them don't have sugar. And they're like, oh, you don't want sugar. You don't want a lot, but our little cells, they have receptors. They're called glucose sodium gates, potassium sodium gates, and they kind of open and close to let water in and out of your cells. Sugar is one of them, right? Our body actually needs sugar, not as much as we get these days. But, um, yeah, our poor bodies are kind of freaking out with this new culture of having carbohydrates
1: everywhere. What do you make of those low-carb diets for like a carnivore, keto?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a place for all of them. The keto diet... um, You know, you kind of got to look where the research has been done. So the research on keto diets, I think, was done primarily on men. Um, I think primarily, I I don't know it. And it was also a very small pool. Like their end number was only 15 or something. Um, So I think with keto diets, you have to be really careful because they can be really hard on the kidneys. They can be really hard on the liver. Um, I think most people just need to eat less carbohydrates. They need to eat less refined carbohydrates, less bread, less cookies, less carbs. You know, um, when you're getting carbs, you need good whole grain carbohydrates, right? Some rice, some um, quinoa, some whole grain breads, you know, but minimum, you know, that's not like six slices of bread a day. You know, that's, that's not necessary. Um, You know, I think Mediterranean diets, just kind of sensible diets are the most important thing. I think basically when you're looking at a plate, two-thirds of it should be vegetables. And it should be every color vegetable you can get. And you try to eat different vegetables throughout the day. Because those colors are all giving you different nutrients, right? Really good protein, be it a plant-based protein or, you know, animal-based protein. Um, You want to be careful where you're getting your proteins from. Not a lot of fish, because mercury is an issue. The cold water fish, salmon's great. Um, and then you want some grain, you know, some sort of a carbohydrate. It can be pretty minimal. It can be a whole grain. And you want healthy fats. Like you need fats. Do you need as much fat as a keto diet? How's you doing? Probably not. You know, putting your body into keto acid keto ketosis. Um, it's kind of hard on the body. It's not where it wants to go to metabolize energy for the body, Um, but it can do it, you know. So I think most of these diets are too extreme, basically. Um, Sometimes it can be good for a kickstart, but I don't recommend them long-term, you know, just kind of sensible. You got to look at what your body needs. I always like to bring my patients back to how we evolved, what were we doing you know when we were hunting and gathering you know we weren't out there trying to gather a whole bunch of oats from the grass stalks you know maybe we had some kind of piled away in our um in our caves but you know mas- mostly we were doing roots and vegetables and nuts and things that we could find and you know if we could hunt down that deer you know precious stuff uh, and just kind of pay attention to that and you know, sweets, sweets are an interesting thing. Like our, our brain has to have sugar to function. So we are hardwired to to crave sugar, to want sugar. So a little bit of sugar, our brain's like, yes, you're feeding me, right? But if you think as a hunter-gatherer, we didn't have sugar available to us. When we had sweet things was in the summertime fruit everywhere, right? So Think of a bear. They're gorging themselves on fruit. Your body is like releasing all of this insulin saying, oh, store this fuel as fat so the wintertime we can have something to use, right? We can go into ketosis and use that fat as necessary to get us through the winter. And then we have sugar again. Um, There was honey. But, you know, honey was kind of risking your life, you know. If you climb that tree and break your leg, you're dead. You know, your your tribe doesn't want you anymore. You're worthless. You're going to die. So, you know, you got to kind of think, how did our bodies develop? Yeah, we crave sugar, but now we have it everywhere. And so you eat a little bit and you want more. And you eat a little bit and you want more. And then you have a good meal and then your body's like, give me the sugar. <laughs> Where's the sweet, right? So it's it's kind of looking at that and realizing where that came from. Um, And sometimes that helps people kind of go, oh, okay, this is my animal self. I don't need this much. And the more you take sugar away, the less you eat, the less you crave. You know, people are like, those first two weeks of stopping sugar, oh my God, it's so hard. And now I don't crave it, right? But then I took a bite and now I can't stop eating it again. You know, it's just, it's so funny. Our our little bodies try so hard to do what they're meant to do. And um, you know, our little four forebearers didn't have like a seven eleven on every corner. And when you walked into the store, it wasn't burritos to go and sandwiches to go and candy and cookies and whatever. So
1: anyway. Yeah, and the insane quantity of sugar oh. in each thing. That's what's really crazy is it's not, oh, five or six grams. It's 50 or 80 grams yeah. of sugar in whatever you're eating.
0: Yeah. And in non-sweetened things, right? You're finding all this sugar hidden in things. It's like, oh, why you is... You find it
1: in hot sauce. I know. Which, why is it in hot why sauce? Why is
0: there sugar in hot sauce? Why is there sugar in my lunch meat? Why is there sugar in my bread? Why is there... <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But the manufacturers know we're addicted to sugar. And so even though it doesn't taste sweet, the body's going to catch on to it and it's going to eat more. Just, it's hard. It's a struggle. The, it, the struggle is real.
1: <laughs> the str- especially with diet, the struggle it's, is real because food tastes so good and food that is bad for you tastes the best.
0: And you got to eat. You know, it's one thing if you're an alcoholic and you're trying to just quit drinking or you're a smoker and you're trying, you know, you just stop. Well, I say that, but you know, you can stop. But food you have to eat every day and you have to figure out how I'm going to get that food and you need to plan and have things ready so when you're hungry you have something good and you're not just going for you know yeah I'm going grocery shopping but I'm so hungry I'm going to grab this bag of chips while I'm like you know it's hard it's it's really hard yeah
1: what do you make of the kind of switching gears but also kind of not switching gears the the aspect of mental health nowadays, and that we're constantly prescribing medications for it. Do you think that some of that is dietary? Do you think some of that is valid that we should be going towards meds or just treat that as a backup that we should try to solve some other factors first?
0: Well, kind of all of the above, right? I mean, it's so many different things. Um, I think medications can be the right medications at the right time, can be amazing. Um, Frequently medications just kind of numb you and take away all of that feeling so you're not feeling one way or the other. It's a huge complaint from patients. Um, a lot of times I have found, you know, it's like neurotransmitters, right? Our body makes neurotransmitters, um, serotonin, dopamine, our feel good, you know, things. Um, serotonin, we have more serotonin receptors in our gut than we have in our brain, right? So that fluttery feeling, the butterflies in the stomach, yeah, that's a real thing because that's where your serotonin receptors are. And um, so having a healthy gut, kind of funny, right? Having a healthy gut is important um, for that kind of thing. Making sure again, you have the right nutrients to make those neurotransmitters for your body. Um, It's one of the things I discovered late in my life. Like if I had the right supplement to take to help support the production of that neurotransmitter, I felt so much better. Um, And it was actually, it was um, one of the B vitamins, you know, and it just helped that conversion to... The serotonin, um, which was so helpful for me, it was kind of amazing. Um, And there's some really good herbs that you can do these days that are are helpful for depression. But you also got to figure out why are you depressed, right? So you need a good therapist. And there's a lot of different therapeutics. You know, um, talk therapy can be helpful. I have found EMDR, this rapid eye movement therapy, to be amazing. They they mostly talk about it in conjunction with um, post-traumatic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disease disorder. Um, I found it super helpful de- for depression. It helps re- rewire those tapes, you know, that like, oh, this happens and this is going to happen and then this happens. And it helps stop that and kind of re- rewire those n- neural pathways. So you can stop thinking, oh, this happens, this happens. No, this may happen. This may happen. Oh, there's lots of alternatives. So, EMDR is great. Um, sometimes a neurofeedback can be very helpful for that kind of thing. Therapy is huge. I mean, you have to figure out, you know, life is hard. Life is hard. And then some people get really kind of set up from the get go in situations that just make it catastrophic, you know, and you kind of wonder how they actually have made it as long as they have. So I think that's super important. Um, unfortunately, I think antidepressants are overprescribed, right? Like how many times have I said, the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you. Here's an antidepressant. Go ahead. You know. You're fixed. Yeah, you're fixed. Out the door you go. Um, or an anxiety medication, right? I have found so many patients who have had like a folate deficiency or a B12 deficiency and their nerves you know, you needed this, these nutrients. And then, oh my God, suddenly I'm not as anxious as I was. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of different things. Um, I don't think it's an easy answer. I think, I think our culture and our world is changing so quickly and there's, you know, social media, media in general and what they put out and the crazy, I mean, media is all about, you know, getting your attention and how to keep you tuned in. And so what kind of horrific things can we keep talking to you about? How much do we hear good things, you know, in social media or in the media, you know? And and so that's hard. Oh my God, the pandemic.
1: Oh, my God. Well, What does that do if you are constantly spiked into this state of stress every time you pick up your phone? And how many times do people do that every day, all day?
0: Yeah, it, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for our younger generations right now, right? Like, I don't know, I didn't have a cell phone when I was five years old and I wasn't looking at it. And I was certainly didn't have one in school. and And it's hard. It's overstimulating to the brain in the wrong way. They're not getting enough sleep. They're anxious about, you know, what else is going on? What am I missing? Um, it's it's so hard. I certainly don't have an answer for it. Part of me thinks, yeah, don't give your kid a phone until, you know, they can deal with it and have phone, you know, screen time. I think that's a great idea. I'm not a parent. I There's a reason I'm not a parent. <laughs> and I hats off to all those parents out there because it's – it was hard in my day, and I couldn't even imagine what they have going on now, you know, with, with screens and, you know, in the pandemic when all the kids were at home and not being socialized appropriately. And so many young people are really struggling still with that socialization and trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. Um, it was funny going into the pandemic, I thought, you know, kids, they have these little plastic plasticity in their brains and they can adapt and change and they didn't do so well with being isolated. Um I I really take back everything I said at that point cuz it was it was hard on them. It was hard on everybody. You know, it was it was a tough time. I remember people were like, you know, they're like I I had such a hard I lived by myself, so I had no physical contact for 2 3 years or something whatever it was. And, you know, it's like people didn't get it. They were going home to their husbands or wives and kids and getting hugs. And it's like nothing. And I used to hug my patients. I hug my patients again. I'm so happy to be able to hug my patients. And um, it was a tough one that not having any. And I'm a loner, so I don't really, you know, that was okay. I didn't mind being at home by myself, but not having physical contact with people was super hard. So Yeah, it's tough. I don't even know why I went off on all that. um, Mental health, it's a tough one. And I just think it's getting harder. And I wish I had some good answers. Nutrition, definitely. A lot of things you can do around that. Therapy, definitely. Exercise. Exercise.
1: I mean, how many people feel like crap physically and mentally, but they don't do anything? They're just eating processed food all day. They're not exercising. And then they wonder, why am I it's, depressed?
0: It's a cycle, right? Because you don't feel good. So you eat the food. It and makes then you the, not feel good. It makes you not feel good. It makes you overweight and unhappy. And let me tell you, when you're really depressed, there was a time in life, my life where I was really depressed. And I remember going in to some doctor's office and they're like, well, you know, exercise would f- make you feel better. And I was just like, screw you you have no idea like how hard it is for me just to get out of bed every day and you're telling me to go exercise. You know, I was like, I couldn't even imagine. Now I live on the endorphins that I, you know, my weightlifting and cycling training. I just, I love it so much, but it's hard. It is hard. And people need that kind of constant support and encouragement And then one day it's going to be like, oh, yeah, maybe I won't eat so much of this. Or maybe I will just go out and walk. Um, The Japanese have this thing called forest bathing, you know, where they, you know, it's you go outside and you walk in nature, just be in nature. And even if it's going and sitting in the community forest or going and sitting on the beach and that kind of thing can be so helpful. It just is so helpful and so calming to the psyche. And it feeds, you know, gives us these negative um, electron bathing, basically, right, that just kind of helps calm everything down. So it's a thing, you know. I, I sometimes wish I would think about just writing a prescription. Sure, you want a prescription? Here, go walk in the forest, you know. It, I don't want you running in the forest. Just go go be in the forest for you know. Be with those big, huge redwood trees. We live in an amazing
1: place. We do. We definitely I do. I love our place.
0: Anyway. So, yeah.
1: Well, Sherry, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate <laughs> you coming on and talking with me. I had a great time.
0: Can you tell I love talking about yeah. this stuff? It's it's my passion for sure.
1: It it comes across.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's my passion. I love it. I love being able to bring the medicine to Humboldt County because um, we're kind of the only thing. Peter Stern's down in Garberville and I think he's getting ready to retire and... We're at, you know, from here to Reading to, we have patients up in Oregon that come down to see us. That's weird. Like, Oregon has a lot of naturopathic doctors. Why are you coming? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a good thing. Thank you for having me. Mike.
1: Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find oh, North yeah. Coast Naturopathic Medicine, get involved?
0: Yeah. So, we're on Facebook, North Coast Naturopathic Medicine, like us. Um, and our website is also North Coast Naturopathic Medicine or NCNATMed. Um, that's the easier thing to do. Um, you could call us. Our office is 707-840-0556. You can find us. Just Google us. We're like the first ones that pop up because, um, well, that's right. We're the only ones. Um, but yeah. And we love to talk to patients and let them know if we can even help you, right? So, which we can help most people.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, really. Thank
0: you. This is fun.